it's funny because we kind of do church, I guess, in a bit of a different way than maybe a lot of churches. And that prayer and share time, wow. Or as a pilot would say, whiskey, Oscar, whiskey. Wow. Uh, W-O-W, exclamation mark. And the reason I wanted to call it a wow kind of moment is because when God's Holy Spirit moves through all of us and we share out of who we are and out of a relationship with him, everyone else is built up as well. And if you ever want to go, why do we do the prayer and share? Why do we do church the way we do? Uh, Think back to this moment. I mean, wow, think about some of the things just happened there. It's amazing, really. So thank you so much. Thank you because now that means hopefully I can bless you by sharing with you the gift that God has given me, which I hope is to preach and to show truly the heroics of God in Jesus Christ, particularly through this Resurrection Sunday. So kids, uh, in a minute, I know that you've been looking forward all week to my sermon. In fact, that's probably why you come to church, isn't it? What do you reckon, Torin? <laughs> when I was your age, I didn't look forward to the sermons at all. Like I found them pretty much very boring. So having said that, though, you, you kids are so important. You know, I look over before and I see Zali singing along to the music and stuff. And I think to myself, wow, who is Zali going to be? God willing, in 20 years, who's Tyron, Atticus, Atticus uh, Jerry, Liesel? Look, who are these little kids going to be? Who are they going to be? And who is God going to be to them? You ever ask that question? Who are you, God? Because even the most experienced theological person here today, I can guarantee they don't know everything there is to know about God. <laughs> and so it's right to say, in a way, who are you? And every time we come to Sunday, I kind of go, Easter Sunday, uh, and we see some of the images which I'm going to tie into. Guess what that image is up there? Notre Dame. Uh, whenever I see all these kinds of images, I go, who are you, God? Because all of these images become remembrances, and the remembrances become concepts in our minds, and the concepts become our knowingness of God. And so when we see images like this, which are symbolic and representative of a place of worship to God and all the other things that are in our mind that we know of God, that's actually shaping how we see God. So I really want you kids, and I know it's hard, it's hard to listen to someone like me for 30 minutes or so, and it won't be more than 30, promise. Um, Well, maybe I should make promises I don't keep. You guys know. Uh, Anyway, I just wanted to let you guys know this is our fourth session, okay, in the deep water series, going deeper, going into the deep water with Jesus. And we've already looked at three deep water sessions with Peter, and we're going to look at a fourth one. But before we do that, because we're going to be talking about fish, and so even if some of the older uh, people want to open up to John 21, uh, John 21, we're going to be in John 21. Now, Get Becky was super excited because she goes, oh, Dad, you're bringing back the fish game. Oh, I am bringing back the fish game, people. Bringing back the fish game. Do you, guys, do you guys know the fish game? So in ancient times, you know, do you know when we t- learn about Jesus, people for 2,000 years have been learning about Jesus. How old are you, Zali? Three. So that's like 1,997 more years than you've been on earth. <laughs> That's a long time. And back in the early days and in times of persecution, when people really, um, some people hated Christians for various reasons and a lot of Christians had to sort of secretly go about their business, um, if they were going along the road 
And one day they might see another person, they might start talking, they might feel something warm happening in their chest. They go, oh, this person, why are they talking this way? They might be a brother or a sister in terms of worshipping and serving Jesus. And so what they would do is on the ground, they would get their foot and they would make a half a fish like that. And, if, and, and so if you didn't know, if you weren't in the know, you'd go, oh, that's, this bit, that guy's just distracted or that, that woman's just distracted. But if you were in the know, you would, in the dust, complete the fish. So you would do half the fish and the other person would complete the full fish. And that became known as Ichthys. Now, Ichthys is basically the first letters, it's an acronym, it's the first letters in Greek of Jesus Christ, Son of God, Saviour. So it was Iusus and then et cetera, et cetera, in Greek. Jesus Christ, Son of God, Saviour. And the fish, where's the fish live? Where's the fish live? <laughs> in the sky, Torin? In the ocean. Now, when you go and look out at the ocean, look, I've got the ocean. Can you see any fish there? No. What do you have to do if you want to see fish? You have to go underwater. You have to look deeper. You have to look deeper. And do you know what? All through the Bible, we're told to... Basically, in different words, look deeper. Don't just look at the surface of things. Don't just if, imagine someone going, ah, I've been to the ocean. It's nothing but this sort of flat, liquidy stuff. That's all it is. And you'd be going, have you ever looked deeper? So I really want you in my sermon, and, and sometimes your mind might wander off, and that's okay. Um, I really want you to look deeper. So the fish game is, uh, as I'm going through my sermon, you'll see a little fish come up. And then see how it says a part of a verse here. I want you to write that down or get your mum and dad to help you write it down. And then at the end, it's going to, you're going to have to sort of unscramble it and turn it into a verse. Bring it to me. Um, and if you want to actually go and see Mrs. Park now, she's got some paper for you. And in between times, but remember, you're going to have to look at each slide as it rolls through because they won't be on all the slides. I might give you a few hints as we go. Write it down. When you see the fish, write down what's underneath the fish and it'll turn into a big verse. And at the end, come to me uh, at the end with the, with the verse and I'll give you some. Oh, what have we got there? Wow. Well, it's Easter, so we've got Easter eggs. <laughs> but this is all about kids. This is all about looking deeper. You know, Christians should always look deeper. No matter where you're at, no matter how much you think you know God, how much you know of the Bible, I'm asking now the older people, to come with me and to look deeper, to look deeper. So on Easter Sunday, we're asking this question, who are you, God? Or an alternate title might have been, who do we think you are? Who do we think you are? Like you think about all the different images and remembrances and conceptions that you have of God. Some of us have been seeing many, many more Easter's perhaps than others. Many Easter Sundays, many Easter Sunday sermons. I mean, how many... How many Easter Sunday sermons? Who's got the record? Probably maybe Alan. <laughs> Alan would have the, the, the record, I'd say. I mean, far out, you must have had some pretty interesting Easter Sundays, I dare say, in many, many different places. Heard many different Easter Sunday sermons about who God is, and they've now become part of Alan's remembrances. They've become part of his conception of who God is. And same, same for you. And what I want, if nothing else from this sermon, is for us to come away going, there's more to know. There's more to know. And I want to know more. I want to know more. So, like I said, we're going to be in John 21. So I wanted to put up an image of Notre Dame because this image has dominated the news week leading up to Easter. And as I look at the, the beautiful architecture, you know, you look at the Gothic kind of 
nature of this and then you look at the, the history and then you look at it going up in flames, there is a sadness, there's something being lost there. You know, 800 years of history. It took 100 years to build. So if this is 800 years old, this thing is older than Australia as a nation, older than America, older than the Renaissance, older than the Enlightenment, older than the modern age, the postmodern age. If you have a look at some of the amazing architecture there inside, incredible, very exquisite design, design all to point us towards the Lord. And this is what the French writer Victor Hugo said about in 1831. He said, looking up at the cathedral, you see that it is majestic and sublime. Its architecture focuses the readers of the architecture towards heaven. So it's built in this Gothic style. It's tall. It reaches to heaven. The main hall has these kind of soaring ceilings and arches, and they symbolize uh, God's glory and his grandeur and his majesty and his loftiness. In fact, many of the churches of this era were built that way for a very, very good reason. And that is so that when the person came in or you came in as the worshiper straight away, you're, wow, look how big this is. Look how majestic this is. Look how heavenly it is. Now, it has or had one of the oldest surviving wood timber frames in Paris. So basically, they call it the forest in the roof because these are thousand year old oaks and they reckon it would have taken 52 acres of trees. How many acres have you got, Andrew? Well, you've got half the roof of Notre Dame. So this, this was an amazing architectural feat, building feat, and they reckon probably 13,000 oak trees. Each beam was made from an individual tree. And so this ingenious lattice of historic woodwork was nicknamed the forest. When people saw the destruction, people literally cried. They literally cried. And then in the streets, they sung hymns as though someone had just died. And then in one of the biggest crowdfunding efforts ever, they raised $1.6 billion to have it rebuilt. And again, to, to see it burning is this like powerful image because if you think about the idea that we're going in there to see the grandeur, the loftiness, now it's burning. What are we, what are we to do with that? You know, this monument to God, this edifice, this massive building to God, somehow being lost. You know, this, this image of Christianity has endured in a post-Christian country for a long time. But now it's gone in many ways. And when I look at that and I look at this image, which is an image which most people would associate with God, the Christian God, again, I go to myself, well, who are you? Who are you, Lord? Is this, is this who you are? And I know that many of us would say, well, being a Christian, it isn't about a building. But I, I don't think anyone here hasn't felt some sense of loss or some sense of sadness at seeing that. And it's very theologically correct to say, well, of course, the church is way more than a building. But you still think to yourself, here's this, this massive building that symbolizes the glory and the grandeur of God. And now it's gone. And so it really gets us, I think, thinking about the other types of images, the other conceptions and remembrances that we might have in our minds about who this living God is. Because our reality is conceptions and understandings of God. I wonder, I really do, I wonder about my own conceptions of God, my own remembrances of who God is. Because from all these remembrances are, in my own mind, how I conceive God to be. And you might go, well, that doesn't matter. God will always be who he is. It doesn't matter how you think of him, but it matters to you. It has monumental consequences to you in terms of how you think of, conceive of uh, the Lord Jesus and of God. So what I want to do is I want to take a resurrection story. It's not one that we normally look at on Easter Sunday, but it's in John 21 and it's quite interesting and fascinating. And what I want to do is I want to hold up this image that John 21 gives us and I want to juxtapose it against the image that we're given from the news this week of Notre Dame. So what we're going to do is we're reading from John 21 
and I'm just going to read a few sections at a time and make some comments and just uh, relate it back to this image of Notre Dame. It's John 21, 1 to 3. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee. Tiberias was just its Roman name. And it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So think for a moment now. This is a post-resurrection story. These men mostly are fishermen and they, their minds have been blown by what's happened. But Peter, who no doubt would be so excited and happy that the Lord Jesus is alive, has also this very strong remembrance of God, which is one of denying Jesus. And so it's, it's a strange kind of full circle picture that we have here because these dudes have just gone, let's go fishing. What, what else can we do? Let's just go fishing. And Jesus had told them to go to Galilee to wait and so forth. So they're, they're waiting. In the meantime, they go, let's go fishing. So they fish all night. Has anyone here fished all night and caught nothing? So has anyone stayed up all night? How are you feeling after that? <laughs> Not real good. Your eyes are probably a bit gritty. Your tummy's probably a bit nauseous. You feel a little bit out of it. Uh, you might even feel a bit cranky. The whole world, everything in the universe seems wrong. Uh, so here's these disciples. They're sitting in the boat, they've fished all night and nothing. And it's interesting because here's remembrance number one for Peter and for all the disciples. He has now back to where he started from. He's back to where he was originally. He's got this strong remembrance. You remember our first deep water session, this really, this, this really strong image of being on a lake, fishing, not catching anything, and then this voice from the coast, from the shore saying, put out into deep water. This is back in Luke. So he puts out in a deep water and what happens? This amazing catch of fish. And so it's like, it's like almost the Bible and God who is sovereign is taking all these images now and he's reclaiming them. He's taking these remembrances and he's going to do something new because if he doesn't do something new with Peter, all Peter will remember of Jesus, perhaps, is this denial. So there they are fishing all night, gritty eyes, hungry, frustrated. And again, they're in this sort of almost meaninglessness of work again, futile work. But something cool is about to happen. In verse four, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. So it's like, it's almost like Jesus is reintroducing himself reintroducing himself to Peter and to the disciples. Here's this really strong image. Now it's like it's rolling out the same way it did the first time. A couple of little differences, but generally the same way. All of a sudden, the, the nets are full. The nets are full. And we go, who are you, Lord? Who are you that after your resurrection, you would show up on the shore of some really you know, lesser known lake in terms of the world, lesser known area, who are you that you'll just show up and yell out from the shore? And apparently it's a very polite way of talking to fishermen. You don't directly say, have you caught any fish? You sort of use a double negative. Have you not caught any? It's a bit more polite, apparently. And they say no. They throw their net down. And next thing, they're just, they're just teeming with fish. And again, Peter must be going, well, this is familiar. 
this is very familiar, could it be? And maybe there's like a, a sense of hope that's starting to build in him. But for me, again, like let's juxtapose this with the image of Notre Dame, this magnificent building, and this little scene here. The story continues. Verse 7, the disciple whom Jesus loved, which was John, he says to Peter, it is the Lord. Now, when you read it is the Lord, you've got to put, I reckon, more than just the one exclamation mark that the NIVs put there. I reckon it'd have to be three or four exclamation marks. It is the Lord. It is the Lord. Like, it is the Lord. And as soon as Peter, Simon Peter heard him say that, he, he wraps the outer garment around him for he'd taken it off and he jumps into the water. He just dives in, hence my name, deep water diving. He doesn't stop he doesn't hesitate he doesn't think it's just he's just caught up in this glorious moment i call this the brilliance moment the brilliance moment now let's think about this for a moment let's think about this for a moment so uh notre dame would have had over 800 years i don't know hundreds of thousands well millions now millions because of the tourist aspect but even, i'm talking worshipers true worship i believe there were doing true worshipers in that place at times and there would also be people who go what's this all about yeah pretty church let's get out of here that's fair enough but Think about that for a moment. Think about all the experiences that they would have had in there. If it was me and I could go to Notre Dame 100 times a day, or if the French president said, Adrian, I am bequeathing to you Notre Dame. It shall now be yours personally. You can do with it as you want. And I could go in there and we could move Willowburn there and we could use Notre Dame and we could sing awesome songs and the acoustics would be so good. Once it's fixed up, we'll let them fix it first. Let them fix it first, then we'll go. But think about this for a moment. If you could take one of those worshipable moments when Notre Dame was at its best, in whatever church service that was, or you could have this moment in this boat, which one would you want? <laughs> who, would, who would not say the boat? I would say the boat. I want the boat. Now, we're not all the same, so not all of us are going to dive in. There's more sensible people. Like, we'll just wait. We'll just, why is he swimming? Like, we're, we're in a boat. So, but some of us who are a bit more impulsive, we'll dive in, okay? But some of you will take your time, and that's fine. But we would love that moment, would we not? And that moment, I think, resonates deep in our hearts, beyond the glory and the majesty. As, as, I'm not actually dissing the glory and the majesty, but what I'm saying is, our God has given up the glory and the majesty and he comes and he stands and goes, friends, have you not caught any fish? And then when Simon Peter hears that, it's just like bang, straight in. In this moment, so let's, in this moment, Peter's remembrances, his conceptions are now being reshaped. His, his, one of the most driving images for him, one of the most powerful images for him at this time must have been Gethsemane and it must have been that courtyard where he denied his Lord. But now the Lord's like redeeming. He's redeeming all these images. And I'll, I'll show you why. It's really interesting. And again, we should say, who are you? Who are you, Lord? Whatever glory a building could bring, you're so much more. And in some ways, so much more real than that as well. So in verse 8, the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, only about 100 yards, so about so 80 metres or something. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it some bread so the olfactory senses does anyone know what they are yep smelling smelling senses are one of the most powerful senses for triggering a memory so for me whenever i smell pine being cut it triggers strong memories of my lumberjack days of cutting down trees if i smell jet a1 fuel it triggers strong memories of being a pilot and many experiences it's funny though because that memory has been reshaped because jet a1 smells a bit like kerosene actually is kerosene mostly and in zambia kerosene were used in lamps and stuff like that when i was a, a missionary there so that memory's now been replaced by another one it'll trigger another one so when we see the coal fire burning here it would have smelt would have had a strong smell so as peter clamors ashore and 
puts on his tunic, whatever, dripping wet, and sort of, you know, probably is checking out Jesus. The smell, no doubt, of this coal fire would have wafted into his nostrils. What do you think that would have triggered? When was the last time he smelled a coal fire in all probability? In the high priest court, yeah, so he's warming himself there. He's warming himself around the same fire that soldiers and so forth are warming themselves around. And that is when he denies his Lord. Imagine that. You might go, oh, Jesus, that's a little bit cruel, isn't it? Well, wait, wait for it. Powerful. In fact, my um, psychological friends, my psych friends, will tell you the same thing. These, are, these can trigger episodes in people for PTSD and all that kind of stuff. Oftentimes it's a smell. It's a smell that really powerfully um, triggers a memory and actually almost zip lines them back into so your brain experiences the moment again. You experience the moment. Your brain can't differentiate in some ways if it's a powerful image or a powerful smell. So in verse 10, Jesus says to them, bring some fish, some of the fish you have caught. Simon Peter climbed back aboard. So he swum in, got to shore. Now he's back out to help with the fish as the boat comes ashore. But even with so many, the net was not torn. There was 153. And this is a great testimony to John, the fisherman, wanting to probably not show off, but tell everyone this was a big catch. 153, that's a lot of fish. If you want to give someone a good concept of how big this catch is, you give them detail. All storytellers know you give them details like that. It brings this realistic sense. And this is another testimony to probably the authenticity of John writing this, because who else would know there are 153? Someone who was there would know that. And Jesus said in verse 12, come and have breakfast. (laughs) Think about Notre Dame. Think about this moment. Jesus says to you, you're dripping wet. Come and have breakfast. Like no holy person who was trying to write a holy scripture to impress the world would ever write a scene like this. It's just too unglorious. It's, it's, it's just too banal. It's too plain. It's, it's too everyday, ordinary routine. Come and have breakfast. Really? Come and have breakfast. And it says here, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They all knew it. So they've all had this brilliance moment as well. It's the Lord. It's the Lord. And he wants to give us breakfast. Who, who are you, Lord? You, do you know what I mean by this, this, this question that I want us to go away with, if nothing else, despite the technical glitches and all that? If we go away from here going, Lord, there's so much more to know about who you are. Andrew said it so well. He's a personal God who comes and makes breakfast for his disciples after the resurrection. It's amazing. Verse 13, Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to them. Think about that. So he, he, he would have taken the bread. He would have broken it and given it. A remembrance, eh? Disciples, oh. Actually, earlier in Luke, in the other account, when Jesus breaks the bread, they haven't recognized him. Then they recognize him. Why? Because there's triggers. Come to get, oh, the hands. He's breaking bread. He's, he's sharing a meal with us. In verse 14, this was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And he's given them this other remembrance. He's creating a new memory. He's redeeming the old memories. Everything about the cross now is it's all coming together in this very personal way for Peter and the disciples. Now, consider, because Peter's about to be asked a question, and it's strange. Have you noticed how strange John is? Because in a way, John 21, it's like an epilogue. It's almost like those Marvel films where you got to the end and the credits are running and then there's, and you're waiting for more. This is it. This is the post-credit movie trailer. Because if you have a look and you read the flow of John up to John 20, he could easily have finished because John wanted to talk about and give you evidence to believe he gives you all the seven miracles and he gives you the resurrection and then he says you know all these things have been written so that you might believe that's john 20 31 i think he could have finished there why doesn't he finish there (laughs) the teaser yeah the teaser well there's a couple of loose ends there's peter in no other account are we told 
how Peter is reinstated or how Jesus, what Jesus thinks about Peter. I mean, imagine if we didn't have John and we'd always be going, what did Jesus think about Peter? We, we, we would never really know. So there's that reason. But also believe that John, who is the beloved, who would have been some sort of colloquial nickname that everyone knew him by. I don't think some people think it's just him being proud or whatever and or the disciple that Jesus loved. No, it was probably some sort of nickname because he spent a lot of time with Jesus. He was with Jesus. He had this personal relationship with Jesus. And I really believe he wanted to finish on a personal note. It's almost like he says, let me finish on a personal note by showing you the personal God who is grand and majestic, but also comes and cooks breakfast. So Peter's about to be asked a question and, and think about the questions he could have been asked. Well, Peter, why did you sin against me? Why did you lie? He lied and said, I don't know you. Why did you blaspheme? We're told in the scriptures, he even blasphemed. He swore when he denied. Peter, you need to repent. This is surprising, isn't it? Shouldn't the holy God in Christ be demanding Peter's repentance? But like Peter's gone way beyond repentance. He is so excited to see the Lord Jesus. I'm sure there's been sorrow at some point. Well, we know there has. But in this moment, he is just caught up in the brilliance moment, the triple exclamation mark brilliance moment of Jesus showing up. Peter, you, you, you let me down. Jesus could have said that. Peter, you had so much potential. Think of the conceptions, the understandings, the remembrances that Peter must have now, the coal fire smell in his nostrils, the meal with his Lord, all superimposed by that horrible courtyard denial, that wrenching away in Gethsemane. Think, think of his conception of God at this time. Think, think about if all he had was this grand, glorious, kind of holy God who's now, Jesus is ascending to the Father. Um, and that's all he had. This is like a, like a Notre Dame, like a cathedralized form of faith. How much worse would he be in his relationship, in his knowingness, his conception of God? This is the question that Jesus asks in three different ways. Do you love me? Do you love me? You know, for God, who at the beginning of time has foreordained, determined that this would happen because as soon as he created human beings, he knew all along that the freedom of a human being to choose to love and truly love and not be a robot would put him on the cross. He would ultimately, Jesus Christ, God in Jesus Christ would ultimately have to take responsibility. I call it captain's responsibility, like a captain of a ship or a captain of a, a plane, you know, a whole bunch of dodgy things happens, but the captain takes responsibility. Captain hasn't caused it, but he takes responsibility ultimately. And this is Jesus, he he, he knows, he knows right from the word go, from before the beginning of time, the lamb that was crucified, the lamb that was slain. For the beginning of time, think about that. When we think about it like that, the obvious question is going to be, do you love me? Do you love me? Love covers over a multitude of sins. Love is so much better than repentance. Love is so much better than, I don't know, this cathedralized view of God, this magnificent, you know, yeah, you, you can actually really appreciate and respect the glory of God, but so do demons. They don't love God. They don't love Jesus. And yet here, it all boils down to, it all distills down to literally, do you love me? Do you love me? Three times when they'd finished eating, Jesus says to Simon Peter, and this is so good, isn't it? Like, I, I love this. Again, it's just, it's just the practical, organic, physical humanity of Jesus. He knows that Peter has been up all night. Let's have a deep conversation on an empty stomach. No. <laughs> Let's have a deep conversation after you've been fed. And again, it's just Jesus showing his love. When they had finished eating in verse 15, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, Let, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt. 
because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Three times, three denials. Jesus has just recaptured, redeemed another remembrance. Three denials, washed white, clean as snow, three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And this isn't just for Peter. It's for us because he's saying, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. This is Jesus' preoccupation. Preoccupation is you, all the future lambs, the future sheep. And then we're told there in verse 18, I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death to which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. So Peter would be so caught up in a lifelong love affair of the Lord Jesus that he would even, church tradition tell us, not only accept that he was one of Jesus, but accept the crucifixion upside down because he didn't want to be crucified like his Lord. I mean, you imagine the love that must have built up in Peter's heart. And it was a love that I reckon stems in a large part from this moment where Jesus shows him such love. And this moment for us is so important. You know why? Because if we take the resurrection, which is so glorious, and you saw my sunrise photos, many people have seen them on Facebook. We take that moment, but it's distant. Like it's so big and so glorious and so magnificent that it's sort of distant. And if our view of God is just that, if it doesn't include this kind of moment, we are so much poorer for it because Jesus hasn't just stayed distant and grand and magnificent and glorious. He comes and cooks. He comes and speaks and relates. And, you know, I know that it's different in many ways for us now. But if you have a look at end of Luke, we're told that the disciples, after watching Jesus ascend into heaven, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. But Jesus has just left them. Why would they be joyful? Wouldn't they be going, wow, this, this, this party's just getting started. Things are just starting to happen now. We don't want you to go. We want to talk to you. We want to relate to you. But Jesus has said many times already that something better is coming. The Holy Spirit is coming. I don't know about you, but I believe I have had moments like this and I continue to have moments like this. They're not exactly the same as Peter having breakfast cooked for him by the Lord Jesus. But I can tell you, I reckon the feelings, the sentiment, the sense of reality, the sense of presence is the same. I feel it. And I want you to feel it as well. I want you to know that. I don't want you just to be Notre Dame Christians. You know, that, that, that's, a, that's a special thing. It's a special building. There's no doubt about that. But there's so much more to that, to faith, than, than, than that building. So much more. I want you to seek and to go deeper with the Lord Jesus. I don't want you just to be sitting there in this sort of cathedralized version of faith or any other conception that is less than what God would have your minds be filled with. God in Jesus cooking breakfast for his friends and he says, do you love me? Take care of my sheep. What would Peter's conception, his understanding, his relationship of God be now? It's qualitatively different to what it was before. And that's what I want for us as a church. That's what I want for us for the rest of 2019. That's the best Easter image of all. That image of Jesus coming for us, cooking breakfast. You know, Notre Dame, even before the fire, it looked so grand in the photos. But here's the reality. That thing had been underfunded for decades. And it was actually quite controversial because uh, secularization and so forth, there was this real push that we don't want to be like pouring money into religious buildings. We should be pouring money into other things. So no major restoration had been carried out on this ancient building since the mid-19th century. That's the mid-1800s. 
and behind the public areas lay desolation. Wooden planks had been installed to cover the holes in the roof. PVC tubing was sticking out from gutters from which the old uh, gargoyles had fallen. The old cathedral is falling into ruin. Everywhere the stone is literally melting under attack from pollution. Your finger sticks in it like a lump of butter. The fire just brought out the, two, the true reality of that building. No building can last forever. I'm sorry, it just can't. No building will last forever. Even one that was dedicated to God all those years ago. There is the forest of trees. All the oaks, thousand years old, just burnt, tumbled to the ground. It was within 30 minutes of being destroyed. And yet there was a powerful image as well. I don't know if you saw it, or maybe you did, maybe you didn't, but... Oh, thank you. Have you already got... Oh, awesome. Thank you, Zali. What is that? Is that a fish under the water? It looks like it. <laughs> See this image here? Oh, can you go to the next one? Keep going. Where the firefighters are. Number 24. Slide 24. Yeah, that's it. So... This is while the place is still burning and people were running in to try and save the relics and that kind of thing uh, until it got really dangerous. But, oh no, go back. Yeah. You see in the background, there's this little picture of a cross just, just gleaming in the fire. This is the thing. To me, that says, even in death and suffering, even when everything else is lost, there is still this core part of our faith, which is our relationship with the living Lord Jesus you know, with the coal fire smoke and the breakfast in his hungry belly and the words of love seeping down into his soul from his face. This is Peter's face-to-face -face lakeside encounter with Jesus. This last deep water moment, how, how, could, how would Peter see, feel and relate to Jesus and to God? It wouldn't be as a far away, distant, lofty kind of God. It would be as he speaks, he asks, he loves, he cooks, he comes for us. So this Easter Sunday, as we come now to the communion table, I'm asking again throughout this week, question your preconceptions of who God is. Even if you don't agree with what I've preached, even if you think it was a bit off beam, I just ask you to go away and go, Lord, who are you? I want to know more. I want to know more of who you are. Because this little picture here, this little image of the, the God who cooks for Peter it, takes, it does something in our souls, doesn't it? It does something special. It shows us the full orb nature of who God is. So what I'd like us to do now is in that same way, and maybe you could even imagine Jesus as he handed out some bread from that coal fire, and straight away the disciples would have gone, the bread, the body. They would have cast their mind back to that Last Supper, and suddenly all those memories pre Last Supper, pre-communion, must have just come flooding back in and they must have suddenly now been reframed, reconceptualized into everything God said, or sorry, everything Jesus said about the resurrection, about the kingdom life. It is all coming from God himself. We know in our heart of hearts that this is God himself and that God loves us and that God has come as a man and now everything's different. Even death itself is different. And we also have the... The grape juice here to represent and symbolize the blood that was spilt. And so I invite you in your own time to come forward and to partake of the bread. We'll keep the juice and we'll drink that together. Father, I want to thank you for this reminder today. I want to thank you for the specialness of the service. I want to thank you for each one here that's ministered so well one to another. And I just want to pray a special blessing, Lord, that there would be 
this breakfast moment. There would be this brilliance moment. There would be so many more of these, Lord, in the future for us as we walk with you. Even if the circumstances of our lives burn us to the ground and burn everything we have to the ground, that there would be a sense of joy, celebration even, that would deny circumstances. We love you, but we don't truly know you yet as we ought. But you are very keen to teach us and to show us your path. So I pray that that is what you would do. And and Lord, that we would move closer to you. We'd be inspired just like Peter was inspired, just like all those disciples were so inspired, so filled. And I guess that's ultimately what I'm praying for, Lord, that each of us will be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And we and all around us would never be the same again. So speak to us, Lord, as only you can, as we come and partake and as we remember you, our living Lord Jesus. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.